Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 this morning, please. Romans 9, if you're using a pew Bible, page 1133. This is our third of four sermons from this uh, very challenging section of uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Before we, uh, before we begin to look at this final section in verses 19 through 23, which is where we're going to be this morning, I want to take some time to review where we've come from. I think it's important for us to step back here for a moment or two and just trace the line of thought, the argument that the Apostle Paul has assembled here because we are now going to be undertaking this morning probably the most difficult section of this difficult chapter, maybe even one of the most difficult sections in the entire New Testament. So rather than just jumping right into that, let's, let's back up for a moment or two and set the stage again. And that will help us, I think, to understand the point he's trying to make and answer a number of the questions perhaps that come up along the way. So just reviewing, that's all, just reviewing here. Through chapters 1 one through 8 of this letter to the church at Rome, written to believers here that Paul had never had the opportunity to meet yet, but he was planning to go there, he has been explaining to them his gospel, the gospel of grace, that is that God saves sinners by grace through faith alone, that he takes No regard to human effort or achievement in any way when he reaches out and saves sinners. God had also promised, as he promises to do that, he had also promised Israel that when their Messiah came, that they too would experience his glorious redemption, his salvation. Yet when Messiah came, the vast majority of Israel rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with that man. In fact, they rejected him so significantly, so profoundly, that they would choose a common criminal, a murderer, an insurrectionist in his place. That's how much they rejected him. That's how much they hated him. Why? How do you explain that? How is it that the people of God to whom the promises of God had been made through the millennia could apparently invalidate them all through unbelief? How could that be? And the significance of all of that is If God can't keep His promise to His chosen nation Israel, then how in the world can He keep His promise to us? On what basis can we depend upon His promised redemption? How can we say, like the Apostle Paul does in verses 38 and 39 of Romans 8, that I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, that is, Messiah Jesus, my Lord. 
How can you be so convinced, Paul? How can you know that to be true when the evidence is that God can't keep his promises? That they do fail. That the people of God has, have rejected and thus disrupted the plans of God. How do you, how do you fit all that together, Paul? So Paul undertakes here in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to answer that exact question. His heart is filled with a profound sense of sorrow for his brethren, his fellow Israelites. He even expresses in, in verse 3 of chapter 9 that if it were possible, he would be willing to be condemned to hell himself if that would redeem them. I mean, that's the seriousness of what we're talking about. The vast majority of the chosen people of Israel are under damnation. They're headed to hell. How are you going to explain it, Paul? How are you going to reconcile it? What's the basis of your, your conviction that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? How do you know God's promises are going to hold for you, Paul? So he begins to answer the question here. And he answers it really in a, in a twofold way, and he, he does it by drawing upon the Old Testament. In fact, in this section of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, there are more Old Testament citations and allusions than all the rest of Paul's writings put together. One, let me say that again. One-third of all of Paul's, that's a better way to say it, one-third of all Paul's New Testament citations and allusions occur in these three chapters when compared to all his other writings put together. He's going to answer the question. The point is he's going to answer the question from the Old Testament. That's the point of it all. This is not something new. This is something that has been revealed in the Old Testament. The way he answers the question is in chapter 9, he says that the unbelief of Israel is according to the election of God. That is, that it is the plan of God and has been from the beginning. He then goes on in chapter 10 and he says that the, the stubborn refusal of Israel to accept their Messiah is their responsibility. It is their fault. They are justly condemned for their refusal to believe. So he sets up this amazing tension. In chapter 9, he says that God has mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He hardens whom He will harden, that it all lies with God. He chooses who He will save, and He, and he hardens the rest. And then he comes right back in chapter 10, and he says that the reason they don't believe is because they don't believe. And he sets up this tension here. Attention that has, has aggravated believers for 2,000 years. And he doesn't resolve it. He apparently is not even uncomfortable with it. He just lays it out there, side by side. God is sovereign over salvation and none will come to faith unless he has elected them. And all are responsible to believe. These twin truths are the gospel. They are the gospel. 
But Paul finishes the section in chapter 11 by saying that all is not lost for God's chosen people because God will keep his promise to bring redemption to the nation. And in fact, chapter 11, verse 26, he says, all Israel will be saved. There will become a day when God will intervene in such a way that he will break the stubbornness of the heart of his chosen people and those people will have been elected unto eternal salvation and God will save the nation. How does he go about explaining this doctrine of election? This perplexing doctrine of election. This irritating doctrine of election. This discomforting doctrine of election. This sobering doctrine of election. This fearful doctrine of election. This glorious, merciful, loving, gracious and kind doctrine of election. How does he go about explaining all that? Well, he begins here in chapter 9, verse 6, by pointing out some simple truths, as I say, from the Old Testament. The first truth that he points out is that not all the physical descendants of Abraham, that is the father of faith, are his spiritual children. So he brings up the case of Ishmael and Isaac, verses 6 through 9. Very simply, that heredity alone is not what it's all about. He goes further in verses 7 through 13 and points out that God, who are both twin sons of the same promised child, Isaac, nor does he give any credence to their behavior, actual or foreseen. Verse 11. That is, that there is nothing in Jacob that inclined God toward him. Jacob was not more savable than Esau. He was not a more righteous man than Esau. He didn't have more potential than Esau. There was nothing in Jacob that would incline God to him. It is God's free and sovereign choice to cause the older to serve the younger, verse 12, and then in the words of the prophet Malachi, to love Jacob, that is to choose Jacob, and to hate Esau, that is to reject Esau. Now that raises problems for people. That raises big time problems for people. You mean to say that God chooses people and passes over others for no reason lying within them at all? Yes. That's exactly what Paul means to say. That if he has saved you, it is not because of anything in you that inclines him towards you. Nothing. Nothing. People don't like that. And so they push back, beginning in verse 14, on the Apostle Paul, and, and they make a couple of accusations against him. 
And by the way, these accusations would have no force at all if it weren't for what Paul has clearly taught. These accusations prove the validity of the interpretation of the earlier verses that God sovereignly chooses freely and independently of all human potential. Because if that wasn't true, if there really was something in a human that would incline God towards him, then the accusation would have no force at all. In fact, it wouldn't even be raised. So we clearly know that we're on the right track in understanding what Paul's argument is here by these two accusations. And the two accusations are that God is unjust in his selection. Verse 14. If this is the way it is, then God is unjust in his selection. The second accusation, verse 19, is that God is unjust in his condemnation. These are attacks upon the justice of God. Paul answered the first attack, and we looked at it last week, that God is unjust in his selection, and he did so by examining the life of Moses and Pharaoh. Paul demonstrated from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus, from the lives of Moses and Pharaoh, that God's freedom to grant mercy or harden an individual is both a reflection of God's nature and is consistent with His purposes. God is not unjust in His selection, Paul says. That is who God is. That is His nature, to have mercy where He chooses to have mercy. It is consistent with His purposes, to verse 18, mercy whom He desires and harden whom He desires. And that sort of ramps it up to that second accusation, doesn't it? Well, you will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? This is the second serious accusation that arises from Paul's doctrine of election here. And and we need to understand it so that we can understand why it must be rejected. Why this accusation that God is unjust in whom he condemns has no validity. Now let me just say by way of um, by way of explanation here, I guess, that the this is tough stuff. These are hard. This is a hard doctrine. This is a, this is a doctrine that, oh yeah, maybe you can intellectually understand it at one level, but when you begin to really ponder its significance, it's tough. It kind of cuts across the human nature. Maybe there are questions. I just want to put this out there. Maybe there are questions that have been building up in your mind over these last couple of weeks. Or maybe by the time I'm done this morning, there will be questions building in your mind. But I'm going to confine myself to Romans chapter 9 and what Paul has to say. So we're going to stay right in the text. But what I want to do is I don't want to walk away from this. You know, periodically as we, as we go through an exposition of a, of a book of the Scripture, periodically we need to stop and, and kind of camp and examine something a little more 
detailed than the particular passage itself has. And I think this is one of those doctrines, this doctrine of election. And one of the reasons is, is because there's a lot of confusion out there in evangelicalism about what it is, what it teaches, what it doesn't teach, what it means, what are the implications of it all. And also because it's such a, an emotionally charged doctrine. So what I want to do is, is to ask you, on the bottom of your handout, I've given you my email address. That's right, Art, that's a pretty dumb thing to do, isn't it? Sorry, right. we, we have a lot of hard drive space on the server, so it can handle the, you know, all the questions that flood in. No, seriously. What I'd like to suggest to you is that if, if questions are building up in your mind, either from the past or what's going to, what we're going to talk about this morning, I'd like you to email them in to me. Earlier in the week rather than later, please. But next week I'm going to come back and we're going to collate those questions and boil it down into an, a manageable number. And we're going to undertake to answer those questions next week. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going with regard to that. But let's just take a look here at verse 19 through 23 as Paul answers this second serious accusation. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? This objection, this accusation arises from verse 18. Paul has said here in verse 18 something that is shocking. So then God mercies, literally, or has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. That is, God extends mercy or God hardens a man without reference to that man's willing or running, to pick up the language of verse 16. That is, without regard to the man's desires or activities. It is God who mercies and God who hardens. What that means is that God's hardening is not a punishment in response to man's prior transgression. The hardening of God, according to the Apostle Paul here in Romans 9, is not given in response or as a punishment for what someone has done or not done. Beyond that, you notice verse 19, it says, For who resists his will? Beyond just the, the reality that of the question of why does he still find fault is this notion that you can't resist the will of God anyway. Nobody has successfully done it. Because even when you're doing it, you're still fulfilling his secret will, of which Pharaoh is the, case, the test case, the illustration. As Pharaoh was resisting God's commands to let the people go, he was actually fulfilling God's will for his life, which was to be raised up and destroyed. Well, in light of that, in light of that shocking statement, a statement, by the way, which is well-rooted in the Old Testament. The critic here is asserting if, that if that's true, 
If that's how God acts, then it is unjust for God to condemn a man for the hardness that is ultimately a manifestation of God's will in the first place. If that's really how God does it, then it's unjust for God to hold people accountable for the decision to reject Him when they lack the freedom to choose Him in the first place. You feel the weight of that? Maybe you've pondered that in your own mind to begin with. I mean, if God hardens who He chooses, who He desires, and then holds them accountable for their hardness... How in the world is that fair? By the way, this this objection, this accusation, verse 19, demonstrates the correctness of our interpretation of verse 18. That it is totally and solely the unhindered, free and sovereign will of God. It was God's intention to bring His wrath upon the Egyptians... His actions were not forced by the stubborn refusal of the will of Pharaoh. I took time last week to show you that. It begins in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, when God says to Moses, I will harden his heart. And as the next ten chapters play out, that's exactly what happens. Notice Paul agrees with the critic here. He agrees with the statement that God hardens people and yet still finds fault in them. If he didn't agree with that, if that was somehow a misinterpretation of what he's just taught, then now would be the time to correct it. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't try to straighten it out and say, oh, no, no, no. See, what you don't understand, what I'm really trying to say is, That God looks down the corridors of time and He sees who will reject Him and those He he hardens and He sees who will will receive Him by faith and those whom He elects unto salvation. This is the place to say it, Paul, and He doesn't. In fact, He doesn't disagree with the accusation at all. The fundamental objection that underlies this, He doesn't disagree with. Instead, what he does is he rejects the presumptuous assertion that somehow this truth makes God unjust. Paul says the, the, the basis of your assertion is what is wrong. You understand it correctly. Yes, God does harden whom he chooses and then holds them accountable. The way Paul answers this, by the way, he tells us that this is not a humble inquiry for understanding. The objector here has not come before the Apostle Paul and said, Listen, Paul, I'm understanding your words, but I'm really struggling with what it means. And the reason we know that is because of the way Paul responds. He just shuts him down. He shuts him down. It's the arrogance of the underlying assertion that God is unjust in acting the way He does act 
that Paul rebukes. You have to see that. Look at his answer, beginning in verse 20. Paul says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Wow. This is a rhetorical question. It doesn't expect an answer here. But it's framed in this fashion in order to silence the presumption of man who would call God before the bar of human justice and interrogate the Almighty. That's the arrogance that lies underneath this that the Apostle Paul cannot tolerate. Look at his answer. We see his rebuke here in a couple of ways. One is just, and grammatically it's not as, as clear in the English as it is in the Greek. It's, it's word order. The sentence actually begins with, O man, and ends with God. Literally it reads something like this. O man, on the contrary, who are you who answers back to God? Paul is putting as much space in the sentence between man and God as he can grammatically place. He wants us to understand there's a real difference here. And so even as he writes the sentence, he he expresses it in that way. He, He puts man and God as far apart in the sentence as he can put them. Why? Because man and God are way different from each other. But in case we miss that sort of syntactical clue, he comes back here with an Old Testament, a common Old Testament illustration. Verse 20. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Now, to anyone who knows the Old Testament at all, and there is an underlying assumption of familiarity here with the Old Testament, this immediately brings to mind the figure of the potter and the clay that is woven into the Old Testament in many, many places. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. It's a great place to look. We won't look there now. But Isaiah 29, verse 16, it says, Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? Jeremiah 45, verse 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Paul responds here from the Old Testament. He says, Listen. God is like a potter and we are like clay. And the clay doesn't tell the potter how to do it. In fact, for Paul, the the idea that a fallen and finite man's sense of justice is somehow ultimate and binding upon his creator is as ridiculous as a talking soup bowl. He continues, verse 21. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay 
to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? I mean, just as the potter has a right over the same lump of clay to which is no more suitable for one purpose or another, the potter has a right to fashion it into whatever he wants. Whatever kind of vessel he chooses, he's the potter. Paul says, so God has the same right over his creation. Now, this analogy here, this lump of clay, it's important to just note something. Paul is not talking here about men as men, but he's talking about men as sinners. Okay, that's huge. He's talking about men as sinners. That is, men fallen and condemned through the one transgression of Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. The clay is not neutral. The clay is fallen. Now notice verse 21, he talks about honorable and common use. Two types of vessels here honorable and common. A little further on, he speaks of mercy and destruction. The mercy and destruction illuminate the reference to honorable and common. The honorable vessels are the vessels receiving mercy. The common vessels are the vessels receiving destruction. Prepared for destruction. Now, if the vessel for honor and the vessels for common use have been made from a different lump of clay, you know, one clay for honorable vessels, one clay for common vessels, one clay for mercy vessels, one clay for destruction or hardened vessels, then we could somehow try to argue that there's a difference in the clay that inclines the potter in one direction or another. But notice he says it's the same lump of clay. It's the same lump. Paul is ruling out any possibility that there's something inherent within a person, because he's talking about people here, that there's anything inherent in the person that causes God to mercy them or harden them. They are made from the same lump. And in fact, that same lump is Rebecca. In the flow of the context here. Jacob is the honorable vessel. Jacob is the mercy vessel. Esau is the common vessel. Esau is the vessel devoted to destruction. This is one big context, remember. I mean, we've broken it up to a few sermons, but it's, it's to be read in one big context, and it's just flowing. Now, it's exceedingly important exceedingly important in order to understand Paul's meaning in this analogy to recognize that God's hardening is an act directed toward human beings who are already in rebellion against God's righteous rule. 
It's exceedingly important to remember that, to recognize that, that the hardening is an act directed towards God's creation, human beings who are already in rebellion against God's righteous rule. God's hardening then is not the cause of their spiritual insensitivity and dullness, but is the act by which God maintains them in that state in which they are already born. That's huge. And that undoubtedly raises enough questions to necessitate next week. The whole point of Paul's answer here is that God has the right to make from the same mass of fallen humanity some people destined to inherit salvation and some people destined for wrath and condemnation. Now, Paul could end right there. He has answered the accusation. He has biblically answered it. He has justified God from his own word. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't just stop there. He goes beyond this. I've called it the application. Verses 22 to 23. He applies the answer that he's given. And and in the process of doing this, he, he gives us some insight into the mysterious ways of God. He goes a little further with us. He could, he could stop us right here. But he doesn't. He goes a little further, verse 22. He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, the New American Standard here in verse 22, it under-translates the verb willing. It's a stronger word than merely wishing. It's not a passive word. It has the idea of determination or intention. In fact, the English Standard Version translates this verb desiring, the New King James wanting, and the NIV choosing. So they catch the sense of it a little better here than New American Standard does. There is a, there is a sense of determination. There is a sense of intent upon what God is doing here in, in verse 22. Beyond this, when he talks about verse, the end of verse 22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, there is a, there, that is a passive tense verb. That is that it's, the subject is being acted upon by the verb passively here. And in the context, it it has to refer back to verse 18 to those whom he hardens. Who are exemplified by Esau, verse 13. Who are rejected by God prior to their birth and without regard to their behavior, verse 11. See, it just flows through the chapter. He's just continuing to, to draw it down. Now, who prepared them for destruction? Verse 22. Who prepared them for destruction? 
Well, verse 23 talks about God making known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And again, I think contextually what you've got here is you've got the action of God. Verse 18, he mercies whom he mercies, he hardens whom he hires, hardens. Verse 22, there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Verse 23, there are vessels of mercy, right, that he's prepared for glory. It is God who is at work all the way through here. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. We're looking into the mysterious and impenetrable ways of God. There's no way avoiding this. Belief and unbelief are both the outworking of God's sovereign purposes. Both belief and unbelief. They are the outworking of God's sovereign purposes. Do you ever ask yourself this question? Why does God tolerate sin? Why does God patiently tolerate sin? Actually, Paul provides here in these two verses, 22 and 23, three interrelated reasons to answer that question. That's why I said he, he's gone beyond just a simple answer. He's actually letting us take a look into the mystery of God. Very simple. Why does God patiently tolerate sin? First reason, it gives him an opportunity to show how much he hates it. To demonstrate his wrath, verse 22. It shows how much he hates it. You know, it's only God's anger against sin, his hatred of sin, that provides any coherent reason at all for the cross. I mean, why didn't God just forget about sin? Just, you know, look the other way. Because he hates it. He absolutely hates it, and he hates it with the depth of his being. He patiently endures sin in order to demonstrate his wrath. Second, he patiently endures sin because it gives him an opportunity to reveal his power through the punishment of sinners. Verse 22 again, to demonstrate his wrath. First, second, to make his power known. Sin gives him an opportunity to reveal his power when he punishes sinners. I mean, surely in this context, Paul wants us to see the case of Pharaoh as an illustration of what it means to be a vessel of wrath. That's why Paul brings him up. Pharaoh was raised up and hardened for the purpose of demonstrating God's power and proclaiming God's name throughout the world. That's what Exodus tells us. Now, today, some people mistake God's patience for impotence. They say God doesn't do anything about sin because he can't do anything about sin. Do not deceive yourself. God is storing up wrath for the day of wrath when he will unleash it. And the punishment of sin and sinners. The third reason, verse 23 that God patiently adores sin as it gives him an opportunity to display his glory by extending mercy to undeserving sinners. Right? He did so in order he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. 
Even us, by the way. You see that verse 24? Even us, whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. By displaying wrath, God's mercy is shown with all the more clarity. No wrath, mercy can't be seen. You have to have one to have the other. And really, the the great truth of this section, and I think that kind of helps you through it and maintain your sanity as you go through it, is this is all about the display of God's mercy. That's the point of all of this, is that it is about, it's where it's driving towards, it's driving towards the display of His mercy. But what Paul tells us here is that wrath, power, and mercy are aspects of God's character. And they must be displayed because they are who God is. Just like the potter has to make pottery. It's who he is. That's how he displays who he is and and what he is. So God must display his attributes of power, wrath, and mercy as a means of showing his creation who he is. It is his glory. Again, look at verse 23. It is for his glory. Now, we notice in verse 22, it begins with an unfinished question. What if God, and then Paul kind of takes off and he never finishes that question. We, the reader, we're we're expected to, to sort of fill that question in. So it seems to me the gist of the unfinished question in verse 22 is something like this. What if God, because he wants to demonstrate his glory acts in the way he does. That is, he grants mercy to certain individuals and he hardens others. Will you still question his right to do so? I think that's the basic question that Paul's raising there. What if God wants to show who he really is? Will you question his right to do that? God raised up Pharaoh. He patiently endured his obstinance to letting the people go in spite of the fact that he was punished by ten plagues. And he did it in order to demonstrate his power to the world. God was determined to show the world his power. God could have destroyed Pharaoh at any point along the way, couldn't he? Any time along the way, God could have destroyed him, but he didn't do it. He, he patiently refrained from unleashing his full power. And by the way, he patiently refrained until at the end of chapter 14, God had maneuvered his chosen people, Israel, into an impossible situation with their backs against the Red Sea. And then then God parted the Red Sea and delivered his people through it. And then the text tells us that God caused Pharaoh and his armies to enter into that sea. Ever wonder about that? I mean, what in the world were they thinking? Right? There's big walls of water on either side. I mean, that just doesn't happen. That is, the God who just devastated the nation in these ten plagues has now obviously separated the Red Sea. Any thinking person says, stop. They're not worth it. Let them go. But instead... God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Exodus 14, 17, so that he would pursue them right into the the teeth of destruction. God 
patiently endured the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction in order to display his wrath and power for all the world to see. God does not immediately cast sinners into hell, but patiently withholds his final judgment, ensuring that their rebellion grows in both force and intensity so that he can more spectacularly display his glory when he mercifully rescues some sinners and bursts forth in wrath upon the rest. That's why God doesn't judge sin right now. That's sobering. To say that God should not openly display His wrath against sin is to imply that somehow His wrath doesn't reveal His glory. But, beloved, the Bible says it does. It does. Why do people have such discomfort with this passage? I think it's because there's an underlying assumption that everybody has a right to mercy. That everybody has a right to the mercy of God. Let me ask you a question. What about those people who never hear the gospel and perish? Is God unfair to them? I think the key to coming to grips with this passage is to reflect upon the fact, the statement here, verse 21, that it's the same lump of clay. I think if we can get a hold of that, then we can deal with this passage. The same lump of clay, the material from which the two different vessels are prepared, fallen humanity. The question we should ask ourselves is not why doesn't God save everyone? The question we should ask ourselves is why does God save anyone? And maybe more personally, why did God save me? In light of this, When I ask myself that question, why did God save me? My only conclusion is that it is His mercy and grace and nothing else. When I reflect on this, I'm sobered. I'll tell you, I'm even a little frightened. This passage frightens me a little bit. Because it brings me face to face with the awful severity of God. I'm kind of like a moth drawn to the flame. I have to come, but when I get too close, I get singed. I am irresistibly allured and greatly humbled by my absolute dependence on the mercy of God. Let me ask you a question. Who is like our God? Who is like our God? He 
is a wonderful, merciful Savior. Email me your questions, please. If you don't know this awesome, terrifying, merciful God, and as we sing to close here, you come to this lighted cross and there'll be someone there to introduce you, okay?